Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to uh, the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for the show. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 17. The title of our study today is, Lord, hear my prayer. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that that your word reveals the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And so we, Lord, we're, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's true. We're thankful that it reveals the person and the work of Christ and so much more. So Lord, as we look at this passage today, we're, we're reminded of these, of these truths, that your word is true and that your word reveals the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we we desperately need you. So help us, Lord, as we look at this great, this great chapter, to be reminded, to be instructed about the truth of Christ. Lord, open our eyes through your Holy Spirit uh, to the truth about the person and work of Christ and the glory of all that he has done for us in the death and resurre- his death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 17. <clears throat> Psalm 17. Here's what the word of the Lord has to say to us. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge. From their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men who, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children." And they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the reading of God's holy word. Have you ever wondered 
whether God hears your prayer. Have you, have you ever faced a time of deep loneliness and seeming despair? Have you ever been dis- depressed? Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been full of anxiety? Have you ever struggled with your prayer life? Well, today we're going to look at Psalm 17, and it is a model prayer. It's, a, it's urgent, it's a perceptive, it's honest, it's moving. Da- David, the author of this psalm, appeals to God and convinces him to answer, to act. He, he argues his case. He explains why God should listen to him. Psalm 17 is closely connected to the psalms around it. Psalms 15 through 17, they all call for God's protection of God's presence. In Psalm 15, 1, 16, 8, 16, 11, 17, 15, all three use the same rare Hebrew word for slipping, being shaken, or being moved. And if you look at Psalms 15 through 18, we notice that the godly find refuge in God's presence in each of these four psalms. And if you picture Psalms 15, Psalm 16, Psalm 17, and Psalm 18 as the squares of a quilt, these themes are the matching colors they share, even though they have different patterns. And why should we God hear David's prayer and be his refuge? Well, there are, there are three sets of appeals in Psalm 17, beginning in verse 1, 6, and 13. David's first appeals to God on the basis of his own innocence, and then he appeals on the basis of God's love for his people. And finally, he appeals on the basis of his own love for God. And since David was a prophet, we will notice at the end of the, that this psalm points us once again to Christ. You see, God hears us not because of our own our own merit, not because of our own ability, not because we deserve it. God hears our prayers because of Christ. First, David's uh, appeals to God on the basis of his own innocence. Why should God hear him? David claims that his his cause is just and his life is above reproach. David claims to be innocent in his opening statement in verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 17, which says, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. See, David is not asking God to commit an injustice. David had been wronged, and he is asking God to do what is right. Just cause is the English translation of the Hebrew word meaning righteous. This opening line could be translated, Hear, O righteous Lord, or Hear, O Lord, a righteous person, or even Hear, O Lord, a righteous cause. Each of these translations is possible. And each of it has its own nuance. What they have in common is that David is asking God to do what is right. When you and I come to God in prayer, we need to we need to ask what we're asking for. Is what I'm asking unfair to someone else? Am, am, am I asking for something that is against the law of God? Is my prayer anger, anger full of anger or selfishness or jealousy? Am I asking God to help me sin? We need to be able to say with David, hear a just cause, O Lord, as verse 1 says. And now David's innocence also comes out in honesty. His lips are free of deceit. Verse 1 says, God sees through our hypocrisy. 
He knows our thoughts. He knows the deep secrets of our hearts. We, we cannot fool him by making our prayers sound more spiritual. We must be honest with God. We need to understand that at all times and in all ways, God sees and God knows, and we can't fool him. He, he is everywhere. He, this is the God who made us, who fashioned us in our mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says. He's the God who upholds all the world by the word of his power. How foolish are we to, to suggest that we can, we can fool God? And how foolish is it to just live for ourselves then? And to play act, which is what hypocrisy is. It's play acting. It's saying, you know what, I'll do, I'll do this over here. And over here, I'll, I'll, I'll sing worship to the Lord. This shows the divided allegiance of our hearts. But as if this is not enough, since our hearts are deceitful, we're all, we're all, we're all too quick to baptize our selfish desires into something pious as we pray. We're, we're too quick to minimize or to justify our sin rather than repent of it. Even, even our best prayers are often selfish. Women might ask God to provide finances so they have more to give, but in reality, they're materialistic. They love money. They just want more clothes. A man might pray for a promotion so he can influence his, his company for Christ, but deep down, he loves power and wants to get ahead. God knows deceit when he hears it. God listens to honest prayers. You, know, you want to know a good way to a litmus test to, to know if your prayers are honest? Do you begin your prayers more with talking to God about yourself as the focus? Or do you focus on the character of God revealed in the word of God? Do you, do you take time to express thankfulness to God for his goodness, for his love, for his justice, for his mercy, for his holiness, for, for his person, for who he is? Or is it more about, or your prayers just more about Hey, God, will you give me this and that and this and on and on and on? Now, now, don't hear me say that God doesn't want to hear your petitions. And don't hear me say that God doesn't want to hear about your struggles with money, with your job, with on and on. That, that's not what I'm saying. But what God wants more than that is he wants your heart. He wants all of you. And when you pray, you need to understand something. That we who are under grace, we have an amazing privilege. We have 24-7 unfettered access to the throne of God's grace. In the Old Testament, there was only one person who could come before, come before God one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And only when they were ritually clean, only when they were dressed in royal garb. And that's what's so amazing about what Christ did because Hebrews tells the book of Hebrews tells us that Christ Christ tore down that veil separating us from God. We have a once for all sufficient savior who is able to save to the uttermost because of all that he did in his person and his work and in dying and rising from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father. 
And this is why Hebrews 4.16 invites us, summons us before the throne of God's grace to receive help in time of need. So God sees, he sees our play acting. He sees our hypocrisy. He sees our double-mindedness. He sees when we're, when we're saying one thing and we're doing another. And not only that, by the way, he knows the motivation of our hearts. And so there's no pretending. This is why what thankfulness does is it, is it cultivates humility in our hearts. Augustine and John Calvin all said, following the teaching of the Bible, that the Christian life is humility, humility, humility. Humility. Humility is a disposition, friends, of the heart. If we're not willing to humble ourselves before the Lord, there, there's no grace for us. Because the Bible tells us in, in, in James 4 and 1 Peter 5 that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He, he resists the proud of heart. There's, there's seven things Proverbs 15 tells us that God hates, and one of them, or detests, whichever translation you're using, he detests, he hates. Pride is one of those. How are you doing at humility? And by the way, guess what? Humility is a disposition of the heart that knows that in and of themselves, they cannot approach a holy, just, perfect God but only on the basis of Christ. A heart that has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, it cannot help but be humbled and amazed and overflowing with thankfulness for the grace of God in Christ alone. Because such a heart is an honest one. It, it openly confesses sin. It doesn't hide behind a wall. It doesn't hide behind a facade. Most importantly, God listens to answers. God listens to honest prayers. And David didn't just say he was innocent here. God had examined him and he found that he was innocent. It's one thing to claim that you have done no wrong. It's another thing for God to search the deepest corners of your heart and not find a single fault. Verses three through five say this. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. This testing is intensive. The word visited in verse 3 has a sense of an inspection or an investigation, a purposeful visit. When an auditor visits your office, they're there to inspect your books and your procedures. When a colonel visits the barracks, he's there to inspect the state of his troops. The word tested in verse 3 is the same word used for refining gold or smelting metal. The picture is that God has melted down David's heart so that whatever impurity was present would come to the surface. The testing here is also thorough. God went his whole whole life with a God went through David's life with a fine-tooth comb. Heart there in verse 3, it refers not so much to emotions, but David's inner thought life. David also invites God to inspect his words. His 
mouth has not transgressed, verse 3, and he has kept himself from violence. And so he welcomes God's inspection of his thoughts, his words, his deeds, his whole life. His commitment to avoid violence is a word that we need to hear today. We are living in a very violent time. All one has to do in the last five to 10 years, turn on the news, hear about in the last 20 years even, hear about all the school shootings, hear about the violence in our, they look at the the wars all around us. Look at how kids play video games that shoot lifelike pictures of fellow human beings. The games are so realistic that a young man can easily become desensitized to killing. In fact, a recent Sylvester Stallone movie was Bullet to the Head. Our culture glorifies violence, and young and violent men are our heroes. But God's people are called to be separate. They're, they're called to be a holy people, right? Because of Christ. So we should turn away from blood and violence on TV, in the movies, in video games, in all of life. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. We should love peace. We shouldn't entertain ourselves with killing. And the underlying principle is that God notices the life of a person who comes to him in prayer. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Open and unconfessed sin is a great barrier to prayer, but the opposite is true. A godly life gets firm footing as you pray what James says in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. We need to examine ourselves when we come to God. Am, Am I coming to God with a just cause? Am I being honest with God? Am I confessing my sin to God? Is there known sin in my life? And am I confessing it to the Lord and turning from it to Christ alone? David appealed to God on the basis here of his innocence. David also appealed to God on the basis of his love for his people in verses 6 through 12. Notice his confidence in prayer in verse 6 of Psalm 17. I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. How could David be sure that God would answer? Well, verses 7 through 9, they refer back to God's faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness and the covenant promise God made with them as his people. God committed himself to Israel, and David knew he could count on him. In verses 7 through 9, he says this, Wondrously show show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge. From their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies surround me. And the the word steadfast love in verse 7 is the Hebrew word hased. It means covenant love. This is God's covenant loyalty, the faithful love he promised when he saved his people. When a husband takes his marriage vows and promises to love his wife, he's promising, he's pledging hased, steadfast love. He will be faithful to her, care for her, stay with her. And so when David says in verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love, he's appealing to God to keep his covenant vows. You see, God will be faithful to love his covenant people. And with this in mind, it's important to notice in verses 7 through 9, they point back to God's faithfulness when he brought Israel out of Egypt and established his covenant with them as a nation. David quotes two songs of Moses from the books of the law. 
God's right hand, it points back to the time when God saved his people from Pharaoh through the Red Sea. And as they stood on the shores of the Red Sea with pieces of broken chariots bobbing on the waves, Moses said in Exodus 15, 6, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And the phrase, the apple of your eye, and hide me in the shadow of your wings in verse 8, are not random pieces of poetry either. David is echoing another great song of Moses that describes the Exodus in Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12, which says, He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. And by appealing to God with these words from Moses, David is counting on God's enduring love for his people. God would answer because God will keep the promises he made when he led Israel out of Egypt. And David's confidence in God's faithfulness becomes even clearer when we see the danger he was he was in. Verses 10 through 12 say this. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They, they have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. You see, it's one thing to trust God when the sun is shining, when all of things seem to be going well. And yet the storms, they reveal the strength of our faith. David trusted God's enduring love and loyalty when he was surrounded by real violence. How are you doing at preparing for the storms of life? Don't you know that almost every single one of the New Testament epistles, they're written to people who are struggling, facing trials and persecution. We today, Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. We today, we need to prepare ourselves especially in this culture that is hostile to the person and work of Christ, to the authority of the Bible, we must stand on the word of God and not be afraid, not fear, because we have one who is holy and just and perfect in all of his ways. And so we stand on the word of God, on the promises of God in the word of God. And now David ends this psalm by appealing to God on the basis of his love for God. The final verses draw a contrast between David and his enemies. His enemies are worldly. Their hearts love this created world, but David loves the creator. Their portion is in this life. While David will not be satisfied by anything less than seeing God in the world to come, they are focused selfishly on the gifts God gives, and yet David loves the giver. The wicked love this present world, and David asks God to rebuke them. David starts his third set of appeals in verses 13 through 14, saying this, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. David's enemies are worldly, men of the world, verse 14. And what does it mean to be worldly? David says in verse 14, their portion is in this life. They're focused only on this world. You see, if you are world, worldly, you're only going to love this present world. You're only going to live for this present world. And you're not looking for the world to come. You love the gifts God gives. 
your children, <coughs> your job, the inheritance that you pass down to your children, but you do not love God. In fact, you take his counsel for granted. Today, we are living in a time where, oh my goodness, critical race theory, intersectionality. We have, we have issues on seemingly every front that is attacking the biblical worldview and the, and the, and the scriptures. And today is not the day. Now is not the hour to be worldly. If, you, if you're living only for yourself and for your own glory, you need to repent. If you're only serving yourself and not the Lord, if you're not focused on, on loving the Lord and loving others, you need to repent. If you're living with one foot in the world and, and one foot for the Lord, you're not living for the Lord. You're an enemy of Christ. And you need to repent. To be, wor- to, to be a Christian means that you belong to one who came into the world and to pay the penalty in your place and for your sin. And that he rose again on the third day. No, I'm not talking about eternal security. I'm talking about what it means to be a Christian. To me, to be a Christian means that you are, are one who has been adopted by God. Romans 6, 1 through 2 tells us very clearly that we're not to continue living how we want to. May, and may it, to use Paul's words there, may it never be. The, then the reason is, is because we have been called out from the world to a Savior who really died in our place and for our sin and rose again on the third day. He indwells us by the Holy Spirit. So we can't live however we want to live. But this doesn't mean that, that we're ever going to live perfect lives. In this world, this side of eternity, we're going to face the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's going to be times when we falter. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why? Because 1 John 2, 1 through 2 very clearly tells us we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So no, we're not talking about being perfect here, but we are talking about living a consistent life. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, to put off the old man, to put on the new man. That is who we really are. That's our identity. This is who we really are. You know, the the problem is, is so many in our Western Christian mindset today, too many Christians think, you know what, I'm saved by grace, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day. I'm just going to live however I want to live. I'm going to go look at porn. I'm going to have sex outside marriage. I'm going to even have sex you know, while I'm married out with another lady or so on and so forth or do whatever I want to. And, and just, you know what, even though the Bible doesn't say that, I, I can do that. I'm going to do it anyway. But you know one of the hallmarks Jesus says in John 15 of those who love God? is they obey his commandments. Why? Obedience is a dirty word today in the church. It shouldn't be a dirty word, but it is. When you talk about obedience, many Christians hear legalism. Friends, we have been saved by Christ. Christ paid the penalty in our place, And for our sin, he was buried and he rose again on the third day. He gave us a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5 very clearly tells us that we are new creations in Christ. We cannot live how we want to live. 
We have a new king. We have a, a new master. We are indwelt by the spirit. We are adopted. We're beloved. We're justified. We're declared not guilty. We have a new standing with God. And we are becoming more like Christ in the stuff of daily life. And how are we doing that? We're doing it through the means that God has ordained in his word. We're doing it because God has taken our heart of stone and he's replaced it with a new heart, with new desires, new affections for himself. And because of this, we can obey the commandments of God. The Holy Spirit is using the word in our lives for this very reason so that we can grow to be more like Christ, more obedient to Christ so that we will obey his commandments. The reason that this is offensive to so many Christians today is because they don't know what real obedience is. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 9, 23 through 27 to count the cost and follow him in all of life. And then he set himself, Luke 9, 51, to set his face to go towards Jerusalem. And then he sets his face not to ministering to the crowds, he sets his face to ministering to his disciples. Like, like he does in John's gospel, in John 13 through 17, much of the, the rest of the gospel of Luke after chapter 9 is geared towards the apostles teaching his disciples. We need that kind of teaching today because worldliness abounds in the church today. Too many Christians are living for, them, for themselves. They think, you know what? It's all about me. It's all about my love for God. And so, so they live independent of the church. Or they, or they live however they want to live, and they don't obey God. Now, David here, he talks about outward blessings, but his focus is internal. And since their portion is in this life, verse 14, they measure everything by, by what it means for here and now. Does it make me more popular now? Will it earn me more profit? Does it give me more now? It's a man-made way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demands no radical breach from man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and the material results. It weighs success by the numbers. It covets human esteem. It wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worth suffering. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. Worldliness is not a matter of outward behavior. Outward behavior can be evidence of inner worldliness, but the real location of worldliness is internal. It's in our hearts. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 2, 16, For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, and the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And how does John define worldliness in this verse? He doesn't say that, that these particular clothes, this way of speaking, this kind of music, or these particular possessions are worldly. Worldliness is much more penetrating than the simple rules for behavior. When John defines the world, he, he points to the things that we want in our hearts. That's the essence of worldliness. It's what we love. It's the desires, the pride of our life, the things that motivate us. We can be worldly by following a strict set of rules or by throwing all the rules out the window. What makes somebody worldly 
is that his or her portion, to use David's words in verse 14 of Psalm 17, is in this life. They live for approval. They live for respect. They live for status. They live for money. They live for pleasure. They live for security in the here and now. They live in this world, but they're not looking for the world to come, for eternity. By the way, Paul, at the end of 2 Timothy, he he requests something amazing. He requests the parchments, and he requests his, his books, and he requests something to wear. And then he says something amazing. They eagerly longs for the day. That's something that every single Christian should long for. We should long for the day of the Lord. We should long for the return of Christ. We should be looking, looking to the return of our King. But too many are looking for their approval. They're looking for their next promotion. They're looking for their next book deal. They're looking for validation in their platform and acceptance by the world. And let's be clear about something. What what I'm talking about is a consistent teaching of the Bible. New Testament scholar Greg Beale, Dr. Greg Beale, points out that in the book of Revelation, John repeatedly refers to unbelieving idolaters as earth dwellers. And so it seems to me that David means the same thing when he refers to those whose portion is in this life. Greg Beale says that the term earth dwells is reserved for such people because they cannot look beyond this earth for their security, which means that they trust in some part of the creation instead of the creator for their ultimate welfare. Christians instead are exiles in a foreign land or are those who are told to come out of her, out of Babylon, the ungodly earthly system. Since their ultimate home is in the coming new cosmos, believers are strangers and exiles on the earth, not trusting in the present old earth, but they desire a better home that is a heavenly one since God has prepared a city for them for which they wait. Thus, the ones dwelling on earth in Revelation have their ultimate identity with the old earth they adore, while believers have their ultimate identity uh, with the one of the coming new cosmos, the God in whom is their ultimate trust, Greg Beale says. Now, David is not himself an earth drawer. His portion is not in this life. God is his reward. He's not in love with the, this creation. He loves the creator. In Psalm 16, 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. And he ends Psalm 17 saying this in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Nothing on the earth can satisfy the heart of the one who loves God. Nothing can compare to the beauty and to the glory of Jesus Christ. The phrase, when I wake in verse 14, it refers to the resurrection of the dead when we will see Jesus face to face. If you love God, you have a gnawing sense of homesickness wherever you go. The most beautiful rainbow reminds you of something more beautiful that you're awaiting to see. The most majestic mountains remind you of a greater majesty to come. You will not be satisfied by anything less as a Christian than seeing the face of God when you meet him face to face in heaven. Now David closes his prayer to this appeal for God to hear his prayer with a declaration of his genuine love for God. As with all the Psalms of David, Psalm 17 is ultimately about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is Christian scripture and this prayer is no different. If this psalm is simply a pattern for our prayer, then it's almost useless to us. Why is it useless? Because which one of us can appeal to God on the basis 
of his or her innocence, like David does in the opening verses. We might be innocent in regards to the one thing or the another, but the inspection of verses 3 through 5 goes much further than this. The psalmist claims that his whole life is clean. Verse 3, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. And as we've seen before, only one man could pray this way, our dear Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures say in 1 John 3, 5, that in him there is no sin. Jesus trusted in God's steadfast love when he was surrounded by violent men. And Jesus was not worldly. His portion was not in this life. Instead, our Lord had his eyes fixed firmly on the world to come. Hebrews 2, uh, 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Ultimately, this psalm is a prophecy waiting for Jesus. This is Jesus' prayer, his appeal for God to hear him. And when he prayed, he was heard. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although Jesus is fully God, he's also fully human like you and me. God examined his life and accepted his righteous prayer. And because God heard his prayer, Jesus, Jesus opened up the way to the throne of God's grace so that your prayers and mine can be heard. Hebrews 10, 19-23 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great, high, great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without uh, wavering, for he who promised is faithful." So ultimately, we have someone better than a, than a president or a missionary to pray for us. Better than a priest. The, the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, intercedes with groanings too deep for words, Hebrews 8.20, or Romans 8.26 says. And not only this, but Jesus is praying for you and me. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Dear Christian, you have... Right now, you have a lawyer pleading your case before God, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And God hears his prayer on account of the person and the work of Christ alone. And because of this, he, if you are born again, if you're a child of God, the righteousness of God is yours because of Christ, then he hears your prayer too. And he cares for you. And what this means is, you know, you might wonder, we began this time with a question. Have you ever wondered whether God hears your prayer? Is God really interested? The real issue, the real question that you're asking, is God really interested when I'm hurting, when I'm struggling, when I've lost my job, when, when, when my spouse is yelling at me, when, when things seem to be caving in? Is God really interested in me? And what the cross screams to us as the answer is, Yes. And John 19.30 says, it is finished. You see, it may seem like the stuff of your life is not moving in any direction at all. It, it may feel like it's just happening by happenstance. 
but God is orchestrating good out of the chaos of our day. He's turning what was meant for evil and turning it around and using it for his good and for his glory. God is a good God. We live in a fallen world. You might feel today like you're lonely, like you're all alone and nobody cares for you. But you know what? You have a father in heaven who loves you and who sent forth his son to bleed and to die and to rise in your place and for your sin. He sent the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit to indwell those who place their trust in Christ alone. And that's the good news. God hasn't left us to be. He hasn't left us alone. And you know what? Here's the other news. Hebrews 13, 5 and 8 tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So maybe you struggle with your prayer life. Maybe what you're really struggling with is trusting God. Because maybe you're living however you want to live. Or maybe there's something that is really disturbing in your life. Can I say that your Father in heaven loves you and he cares for you and he sent Christ for you? If you're not a Christian, I, I plead with you to repent, to believe, and to put your trust and confidence in Christ alone. That's what Acts 16.31 says, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Maybe you're a Christian today and you wonder, does God hear my prayer? And the answer is a resounding yes. If you're in Christ, God hears your prayers on account of the righteousness of one who paid the penalty for you to make you a new creation in him. And you can, you can cast all of your cares on the Lord, as 1 Peter 5 says, because he cares for you. So will you come to the one, if you're not saved, if, will you come to the one who paid the penalty and rose from the grave for you? If you are a Christian, I plead with you to come to the one who is even now interceding for you, the one who is your high priest. He loves you and he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word that you've given to us. Thank you that you teach us and instruct us in the way in which we are to go. Thank you for this great psalm that is so instructive for us in the midst of trials, in the midst of the, the chaos of our life. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.